From finance and commerce, this is Beyond the Skyline, a podcast about economic development, commercial real estate, and construction in Minnesota. In each episode, you will meet business leaders, builders, entrepreneurs, and big thinkers. I'm David Bolander, editor of Finance and Commerce. Thanks so much for joining me. Beyond the Skyline is sponsored by Ironmark Building Company. Whether it's a new luxury apartment building in the North Loop or expanding the community in the suburbs, Ironmark builds quality projects for discerning clients. Ironmark's foundation is built on a culture of collaboration with clients and projects that stand the test of time. Talk to Ironmark's award-winning team about your next construction project today. Go to ironmarkbuildingco.com. In this episode, Peter Lair of Collier's Capital Markets team talks to FNC reporter Dan Netter. Lair discusses his work, what led him to Collier's, and what advice he'd give to other younger people in the commercial real estate industry. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Beyond the Skyline. My name is Dan Netter, and I am here today with Peter Lair. Peter is a senior associate at Collier's Capital Markets team. And Thank you uh, for joining us today, Peter. Thank you for having me, Dan. It's a pleasure to be here. So I want to start off with just a, a quick question about uh, your education and uh, what you were, you were doing leading up to your career uh, in the commercial real estate industry. Um, can you tell me of where you went to school and, and what you did there? Yeah, I went to school up in the north at University of Minnesota Duluth, go dogs. Uh, at UMD, I chose to study economics. Uh, my reason for choosing economics is I had a really good econ teacher in my AP econ course in high school. That really set me on a good path and taught things in an interesting way. So I wanted to continue my studies uh, in econ in college. Uh, I guess I, to extrapolate on that, it, my main goals when studying econ wasn't to be an economist per se, uh, more to be someone who's who well understands the economy, money and banking, um, can think critically about uh, what's going on and uh, apply economic concepts to their own life. Uh, and I think, uh, I, I think I got that out of it. Yeah, that's great to hear. And can you tell me uh, what experience did you have um, prior to joining the Colliers team? Um, did you work um, for another uh, commercial real estate group or was it something entirely different after you left school? Good question. Uh, so my two summers, my two last summers in college, I had a internship with the Meritex company, uh, Minneapolis-based uh, family office investing company primarily focused on industrial. You know, I wasn't on their acquisitions team or asset management team. I was on their uh, internal finance team. I uh, worked under a guy named Tom Podizek and another guy named Eric Fink. Uh, they had me for two summers, again, as an intern both times, and learned quite a bit about how to uh, do some analysis on what you've made, uh, how efficiently you're running buildings, what kind of returns you're providing to shareholders. Uh, and it really helped me crystallize my interest in commercial real estate. 
as opposed to another job type. So I, I was with them for two years, after which I graduated and began working with the CBRE research department. I was with CBRE research for just over two years, uh, just out of college till just over three years now uh, ago. At CBRE research, I was a support staff member on the investment sales team there, where primarily I was in charge of helping out with buyer databases, uh, who's the sellers, who's the buyers, what kind of sales are going on, um, cap rates, price per square foot, you know, which buildings are going up, you know, which ones are being torn down, those sort of things. And so the timeline in my head and how it's working out, um, uh-huh. is that you joined Colliers, um, and in, or just before the pandemic started? It had already started in it. Okay. It was towards the end of the serious don't leave your house lockdown that I made mm-hmm. to jump to Collier's. Uh, there was an opening on the Collier's team working for a guy named Mark Colesridge, who has an excellent reputation. I, I said myself, where is the place that I'm going to learn the most? And Mark was able to provide, or I thought he was able to provide, which ended up being true quite a bit of opportunity to get your hands on deals. Uh, that's why I made the jump from a researcher uh, to a broker. Mm-hmm. And what, what was it like to uh, join, um, to, to, to make a job shift and, and to, to join a new company in the um, middle of the pandemic? You know, it was a, a little uncertain. You didn't know you know, who the winners and losers were going to be coming out of the pandemic. So you had to pick somebody with, or my mindset was pick somebody with a proven track record with plenty of room for me to grow and just make a leap of faith. I had heard of Mark. I had heard of Collier's investment sales team, and I had heard really good things about Collier's. I had spoken to quite a few people that I respected mentors of mine that also endorsed Collier's and also endorsed the Mark Colesrude team and brand. And when it came down to it, it was really just trust your gut. That's what I did. Understood. And so now, now that you are at Collier's, um, can you tell me a little bit about what your role is on the capital markets team? Yeah. So as a little bit of background, I have a five-person team now. It's Mark Colesford, John McCarthy, myself, Kyle Del Rosby, and Lydia Turkson. Uh, my role on the team is kind of two-handed. I'm responsible for sourcing and executing business. And I'm also responsible for helping create all our marketing efforts, marketing materials, and helping execute deals that the rest of the team brings in as well. And could you um, maybe elaborate on maybe like what your day-to-day work looks like um, working with this team? Yeah, my day-to-day work typically starts off first thing in the morning, get all my emails figured out. Uh, I like to work off an empty inbox 
in my Outlook email system. I know a lot of people are not like that, but if I have too long of a scroll bar, I start to lose track of what I'm supposed to do, what I have done. And then my morning goes on to, I don't know, nine to 11. And this is a typical day. Sometimes it shifts and nearly always it doesn't look the same thing. Prospecting, calling investors, looking up information, uh, finding sale comps, lease comps, and identifying who might be a good person to call on them, uh, who might find the information useful. Uh, then, you know, my day might shift into what do we have in the market and who is the best buyer or who are the best buyers who needs to know about this. Uh, having conversations on that end of the day is typically more back of the housework. You know, are we creating any offering memorandums? Um, is there any financial analysis that needs to be reviewed? Are there more projects that we're working on? Uh, trying to get our name out there, trying to create more early reports. But it really kind of depends. That's a typical day, but, you know, part of what attracted me to brokerage is that there isn't a quote unquote day to day. You kind of take each day as it comes. And more often than not, I wake up and I have no idea what I'm going to do that day. I can have an idea what we have in the market, uh, what kind of people I want to interact with that day, you know, how, how many calls I need to make, who I'm going to call on. But, you know, there's, there's fire drills every day and we've got a lot of business in the market and that picks up a lot of your time as well. And so, you know, you, you mentioned that you went to school for uh, economics mm -hmm. um, and then you made the shift into brokerage. Can you tell me, do you think that having that background in economics where um, maybe your, your typical uh, broker might not necessarily have that background, um, can you tell me how that maybe affects um, the way that you go about your job or um, other things that might come up? Yeah. So there's no one broker that's this alike. They're all kind of zany, crazy characters. Um, each team of brokers is a totally unique cast of characters. The uh, what I think Econ brought to my career is the ability to think critically and incorporate uh, economic concepts into decision making processes and how I'm going to plan for the future. And I think that especially came up. Helpful to me this year, as uh, everyone has been so focused on the Federal Reserve, interest rates up, interest rates down, are things the same, and what it's going to do to the business, and how you can predict changes in interest rate based off different economic indicators. So I think it, it really helped me talk and talk on what's going on in the economy, how it's going to affect commercial real estate. And, you know, you mentioned earlier that your, your first internships that you had in college or your, the internships that you had in college, mm -hmm. you know, you were, you were helping with industrial side of the assets, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, man, that's all Meritex does is they're a yeah. pure play industrial investing company. And, and so 
you know, I, I want to shift the conversation a little bit towards um, the industrial market and, and your views on its current state of affairs. Um, but I guess before we get to that, was there something that attracted you to the industrial side of um, commercial real estate? Well, what attracted me to commercial, the industrial side of commercial real estate is the fact that that for the last five years or the last since I've been out of school and in the business has been where the most of the liquidity has gone. So I started in 2017 at, at near the tail end of one of the indust greatest industrial runs ever. So every single day I came to work, there is always something cool and new and a higher price and a higher lease rate and a lower cap rate and a cooler deal when it came to industrial. So for about three years, when I was working on an industrial project, I never had a bad day. And I never had a day that was worse than the last one. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> that has since changed with uh, the raising of interest rates and the potential for an economic turndown. Uh, but uh, I guess industrial just was where the deals were, and that's what I wanted to work on. Understood. And so now sh shifting our conversation a little bit to and the industrial market, um, yeah. is there any uh, notable sales that um, players did this year in terms of uh, your team and, and industrial markets team? Well, my team is a industrial team and an office team. Uh, we've had mm -hmm. a number of deals in the market lately that have probably had a little bit more of an office spin to them uh, in terms of large headquarters for sale in the market and large headquarters that are about to be for sale in the market. Uh, that tends to be where we have shown this year. Um, industrial deals this last year, we have about half dozen deals in the market or about to close. Uh, the, the real trends there are the deal sizes at least on our pipeline, have been coming down. Um, the big monster deals, while they're still around, have not been we'll be working on this last year. It's been a lot of 20 to 50,000 square footers. It's been a lot of double 100,000 square footers on the industrial side. And what about um, 2024? Um, you know, do you think that um, this upcoming year you know, has anything different in store for uh, the industrial market than maybe what happened in 2023? Well, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. Um, what we had experienced this year was a market that was limited mainly only by interest rates. You know, the space markets were doing really well. Rent growth is high. Industrial fundamentals are looking good. You know, low vacancy high absorption. So really the only thing that's limiting valuation work is what you can get quoted on for debt. So if, if interest rates stop going up, which they have, and if they potentially go down next year, knock on wood, uh, valuations will get higher 
and people will make more sales decisions. So I, I am anticipating significantly more sale activity next year than there were this year. Mm-hmm. And do you, in, in terms of um, things outside of sale activity, um, like, I guess, you know, my mind goes to like new arrivals. Um, do you, what, what is the potential for new arrivals in the coming year? Well, that's an interesting question. We have a good pipeline of industrial going on right now, but in terms of new industrial starts, construction starts next year, I think there's going to be one, maybe two. Uh, the problem there is construction finance is especially tough right now. Interest rates are high still and land sites are hard to come by. You know, ironically, I think that if you did have a building that you could get going on starting next year, you would have it fall in no time. I think you would have high rates and be able to exit at a good price. But that being said, uh, you know, developers are investors, not gamblers. And so when interest rates are high, they've got to pull back on their construction activity. And when liquidity is high, interest rates are low and sale activity is high, they can uh, step on the gas a little bit. So you can't really get too far over your skis if you're a developer. And that's being reflected in the small pipeline of warehouse product delivering next year. And this one's okay. Sorry, I had the iron heat button. Um, what about like, do you see cash deals, um, you know, being a little bit more potent given the high interest rates? Certainly. If you can find a cash buyer, uh, that is, that's ideal. There's no interest rate risk. There's no chance of a, uh, there's no chance of the Federal Reserve mucking up your deal. The problem with that is it, the, these warehouses are very expensive. So typically that would limit to you, limit you to a sub 10, maybe even sub $7 million deal. You know, it's hard to make a cash purchase above that when just a little bit of leverage could allow you to buy more real estate. That being said, there are all cash funds being raised right now. Um, whether those will be ready to, buy property next year or not. I don't know. I haven't had one buy, bid on my deal, bid on a deal of mine yet. But, you know, that that's the rumor. And if you can buy all cash, hold until there are lower interest rates and then refinance out once values are high and interest rates are low, then why wouldn't you? Have you seen, um, like, like do, do you feel like you've seen a increase then in these amount of cash deals over the last year or so? Yeah, certainly. You know, it's hard to tell whether there is an increase in all cash deals or if those are the only deals that are happening. Mm -hmm. Uh, Finding acquisition financing that's actually accretive to your returns is super tough right now. Essentially, you have to work with banks that you've done business with hundreds of times and you have money in the bank and you have the relationship and they're willing to do a deal with you or, uh, you know, we always try to look for life co financing, but that's starting to dry up here at the end of the year. And ideally, ideally 
uh, life co lenders will be back in the market early next year. Mm-hmm. And are there any other um, things or, or trends that you're hoping to maybe highlight about um, the industrial market? I guess what I would want to highlight is the potential for explosive rent growth in Minneapolis next year. The, the limitation on our supply pipeline is hard to understate. Uh, we still have extremely low vacancy. We still have extremely low credit loss. We still have extremely high absorption. We have great leasing momentum all over the, all over the Twin Cities market. So to have our supply, you know, cut in half, uh, you know, cut by a quarter, you know, any impact to supply is going to go directly into rent growth. So if anyone has any thoughts about or any doubts about whether Minneapolis rent growth is going to continue into the future, um, it certainly will. Uh, most investors buying property in the Twin Cities industrial market today are usually underwriting significant rent growth in order to justify the returns they need. Uh, so the, any threat to that rent growth is scrutinized. And from where I'm sitting, it looks like we're going to have higher rent growth in the next few years than we have in the last few years. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Peter, this is, this is probably going to be my last question. Um, sure. You know, you are uh, a younger person, or at least probably the, the youngest person that I've talked to for this podcast. <laughs> um, I'm, I'm curious, do you have any advice for maybe someone who's on the younger side in the uh, commercial real estate industry who, uh, you know, is, is also making their way through, um, through the industry? Yeah. Um, I say go to find a spot where you're going to be exposed to a lot of deals, a lot of transactions and actually be able to get your hands dirty. Um, you know, I heard it in another podcast that there's an inverse react inverse relationship between the size of the deal and the experience you get out of it, which I think is absolutely true, especially in real estate. You know, if you're, if you're hunting for a shop that does $100 million deals only, you go in as a year one analyst or a year one associate, you're going to get a small, small piece of experience in that deal. But you go into a shop that's taken down two to $10 million deals, you know, six to 10 million, 10, six to 10 times a year, uh, you're going to have a significantly, significantly better experience from the latter experience than you will at the uh, big deal shop thank you for joining us today peter i i appreciate your time yeah thank you dan i appreciate it